I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome, friends. This is Theology Unplugged. Michael Patton with Tim and Sam. Um, welcome back from last week. Uh, those of you who are joining us, maybe Friday night, mm-hmm. maybe early Saturday morning. Got a girl who uh, wakes up every Saturday morning. She says this is the first thing she jumps on to make sure our broadcast is up. So well. welcome um, those of you who uh, are anxiously awaiting our uh, conclusion to the invitation to Calvinism. Once again, uh, we welcome you to visit our website. Those of you maybe just joined us, don't know much about our ministry, have never come in contact with anything, jo- join us at uh, our ministry at reclaimingthemind.org or credohouse.org. We're really called Credo House Ministries. We're undergoing a name change. It's an eternal undergoing of a name change, right? Well, it's it's long. Let's just say that for sure. <laughs> but, uh, but check us out. Uh, see what all we do. We're, we're about making theology accessible. Uh, our particular topic here today is continuing on what we've been doing for the last, I don't know how long we've been doing this now, 13 weeks, 14 weeks? I think, I think this was the 14th today. Yeah. Or last, no, this, this today this is, is 15. 15. 15? I think it is the 15th. All right. Well, we got plenty of them. Maybe yeah. we'll uh, have this available on CD for you guys as well so that you can give this out to friends. But uh, we're continuing a, a series called Invitation to Calvinism in which we are calling out to people and saying, hey, we, we three here in this room are Calvinists. We want to not only explain Calvinism to you, but we also want to compel you to come in and and um, embrace the doctrines of Calvinism because we believe that they are not only biblical, but uh, they are the. I, I think. I think all of us would say here. I, I, I can't. I don't know if we've given our personal testimony out of the fifteen weeks, but all of us would say that they are comforting. That they mm-hmm. are. They they relax us spiritually because of their emphasis upon the um, sovereignty of God. Now, we're dealing now with objections. Uh, we've had some that were sent in. Thank you, listeners, who have been sending in sending in uh, questions and comments. But we've had a lot of questions. We also know from uh, talking about this over the years, each one of us personally, that there are some real objections that get brought up. Last week we talked about the objection of why pray, why evangelize if Calvinism is true. And I think we ended with the idea that God has not only chosen the ends, but he's also chosen the means. Um, well, actually, we didn't talk that much about evangelism. We, we, we talked mainly about prayer. Yeah. Um, I think we need to talk a little bit about evangelism. Well, let's talk a little bit about evangelism <laughs> then. Why evangelize then if God has already elected some people to salvation and uh, those who he has not elected uh, will not be saved ultimately. Why, why tell people about Christ? Because no one will be saved apart from a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody wants to look at one side and say, why preach to the non-elect because they won't be saved? And the answer is, we must preach to the elect because otherwise they won't be saved. That's the means that God has ordained. There's, we have no assurance in Scripture 
that we can rest upon, that anyone will eventually end up in the eternal presence of Christ apart from a conscious, willing embrace of the gospel of Jesus as made known to them. Uh, it's just it's just that simple. So somebody says, "Well, if a person's elect, they're going to they're going to be saved regardless." No, they're not. They're going to not going to be saved regardless. They're going to be saved precisely by means of and in response to a gospel that has been made known to them um, by the people of God. And and only God knows who the elect are, and so that is why we don't look at. It's not like Calvinists know who the elect are just by looking around a room and saying, "Okay, I'm going to go and share the gospel with that person and that person because they're elect." Uh, we we share the gospel with everybody, right? And Michael, you started out. Uh, here's a good example of this by saying that this is an incredible comfort to us. Uh, perfect illustration of this is the one that I direct people to is Acts 18, where Paul has. Uh, gone to Corinth, and he's preaching the gospel, and we're told, in fact, that he was, and the language is very vivid, he was opposed and reviled by the people there. So he shook out his garments, you know, in the kind of a traditional Jewish way, and left and said, your blood be upon you, I'm innocent, I'll take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then the Lord Jesus actually appears to Paul in a night vision and says, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And then it says, Paul went back, stayed 18 months teaching the word of God among them. Now that's stunning, um, because here Paul has been resisted, reviled, basically run out of town on a rail, and he said, I'm shaking the dust off my garments. You people, I'm leaving you to yourselves. And Jesus appears to him. He says, no. He said, don't be afraid. There's the comfort. Why? Because I'm going to protect you, and I want you to go back and preach the gospel there. Why? Because I have many people in the city. Hmm. Can you imagine Paul scratching his head saying, no, wait a minute. Uh, if you have, uh, maybe somebody would be tempted to respond. All right, if God has many people there, I think I'll go over to Ephesus then. Why should I bother going back if they're your people? In other yeah. words, Jesus is saying, there are people there whom the Father has given to me. There are elect in this city. And so Paul could say, well, if that's the case, they'll eventually come to Jesus regardless of whether I preach to them or whether anybody else does. That's not the way he reasons, not the way Jesus reasoned. Jesus said, I have many people in the city, therefore go back and faithfully proclaim the gospel. Mm. And like you said, Tim, Paul didn't go back and run around pulling down the robes uh, of everybody, seeing if there's a big E tattooed on their back. And he mm. preached to them as if he knew who the elect were. He preached universally, indiscriminately for a year and a half, confident that the preaching of the word was going to bear fruit because Jesus said, there are elect people here. You don't know who they are. It's none of your business. Preach universally, preach passionately, preach indiscriminately, and do so with confidence because I've told you I have people in the city. And so in a very real sense, folks, God calls us to preach, and we are on a definite mission. But that definite mission is not known to us the way it's known to God. And so whenever God calls us to go into the world and evangelize, whenever God calls on, on us to preach to our neighbor, to teach to our neighbor, to, to share the gospel to our coworkers, there is no, and there never will be, any book, any list, any church that we can go to to find the list to narrow down who to preach to. 
We yeah. why evangelize if God has already elected? Number one, because that's the means by which God brings His people to Himself. Number two is because we don't know who the elect and the non-elect are, right? Right. And an important implication of this, because I suspect that there have been people listening to these broadcasts who would accuse us of being hyper-Calvinists. And that phrase or that terminology is used uh, in a rather derisive and and demeaning way. Mm -hmm. Um, Hyper-Calvinism actually is the view which says that uh, you do not preach universally and indiscriminately, that you only preach to those who already have given signs that they are regenerate, mm-hmm. that they've been born again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, there is a, a somewhat restricted view of our responsibility to make the gospel known. Just let it be known. We utterly, absolutely reject that. Mm-hmm. That is That's not right. biblical. That is truly a hyper and, I think, uh, distorted uh, concept of what true biblical Calvinism is. We believe that we are to proclaim the gospel passionately, universally, indiscriminately to every creature on the face of the earth. Yeah, I remember listening to a radio a broadcast of of a hyper Calvin, maybe a hyper hyper Calvinist, where someone called saying, "I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. What do I do?" And his response was, "Beg God that you're part of the elect. Beg Him and beg Him that you're part of the elect." Not you know, his response wasn't. Trust in Jesus and, and you'll be saved for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Instead, his response was, you know, basically, I'm not even going to basically share the gospel with you because I'm not sure if you're elect or not. Yeah. Um, does God create people? I mean, he, he, here's what we're thinking. Here's what some of the people in our audience are thinking. That they're thinking. Do you themselves. have a friend? You have a friend who thinks this. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I just know that there are okay. people out there. Believe me, I know our audience. I know. I know the the way people respond to this. Okay. And I know that there are a lot of people who are looking at listening to this. And, and number one, they're they're wondering whether we're trying to present ourselves as uh, Calvinist and that this is makes us better people, better Christians, more loved by God. And that's not what we're saying in any sense, folks. But one of the things that I know about you, many of you believers who are out there who are struggling with this and maybe on the verge of accepting it, but here's your hang-up, is that you do care about people. That was the way my mother was. My mother would never accept Calvinism. But she loved the gospel. She was out preaching the gospel all of the time. She brought us up in the gospel. Um, the convictions that overflow from her to me about the necessity of, of evangelism and prayer and, and, and fellowship with God, all wonderful. But when we got into this subject, she could not take it. She could not handle it. She could not. We just eventually had to stop talking about this altogether because she saw it as God hating people. She loved people, all people. God hated certain people. And in a certain sense, to adopt that view of of uh, theology to her was was almost putting her on moral high ground to God, saying, I can love better than you. And I can't accept a God that can't love as well as me. Whenever we talk about this, how do we respond to this? Whenever we talk about the elect compared to the non-elect, 
Are we talking about those loved and those hated? Like, you know, in Romans chapter 9, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. How do we reconcile this? Because I know that this is a place where a lot of people are going. Does God love all people? Michael's looking to his left and to his right to see which of the two of us will answer first. Maybe we should look back at him and let him answer his own question. (laughs) Well, that's why I asked it first. I I had to jump on it fast. Um, Part of the uh, response to that question is we have to define our word love. And what do we mean by that? Because God's love is manifest in a variety of different ways. If we mean, does God feel benevolently toward all of his creation? The answer is yes. We know that the scriptures teach that he showers both the righteous and the unrighteous equally with blessings. He causes his rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. We know that God values and cherishes his handiwork. Um, We know that God's um, love is expressed in the universal indiscriminate appeal. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. But we also recognize that there are some in Scripture who are called not just the loved, but the beloved, the beloved. Uh, The beloved are those whom he has given to his son who deserve hell like all others, but on whom he has set a distinguishing love. So I would say, yes, there is a sense in which God loves all, but there is also a special love that is um, reserved for those whom God has chosen to inherit eternal life. It's not because they're special people. It's not because they're somehow different from all the others as if they have um, merited God's affection or they have set themselves apart by their intentions or any act of will. They are as equally deserving of eternal damnation as any other individual in the universe. But in a, for a reason, again, that Scripture does not disclose to us, because God in his infinite wisdom deemed it most magnifying and glorifying to his name, he chose to set his special saving, electing affection upon them. Hmm. So, again, it's not, it's not easy to answer your question with a quick yes or no. We have to say, well, yes, in a certain sense, God's affection and love does rest upon all creation, But is there a unique affection, a distinguishing love that he sets upon those whom he has ordained to inherit eternal life? And the answer to that, I believe, is yes. Well, the reason why I ask this is because, and I really don't know where you guys would stand on some of this stuff. We haven't talked this stuff through beforehand. Before we come in here, we don't say, okay, let's say this and that. And there are some distinguishing marks within Calvinism that that – but one of the, I think the misconception is that you have to believe by becoming, when you become a Calvinist, that God has an eternal indignation and hatred towards people um, that is inherent at creation of them. You know, like, like he's creating them and as he creates them, I'm going to hate this person. And, and uh, before I even see anything you've done good or bad, I'm going to hate you forever. And one of the things that I look towards whenever I see, whenever I talk about this is, is Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. And in there it says, O Jerusalem, Christ speaking, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, who kills its prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how long have I wanted to gather 
your children together the way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Now, speaking in this context, in a theological context, we'd say they're unwilling and, and it's their responsibility. But if they were willing, they would have been among the elect because that's the only way we can will him is by God's power coming into us. So these people are not elect. But Christ is expressing a, a, a sense, at least the way that I take it, of endearment towards those who are rejecting them and rejecting him. There, there is a longing that God has, which is, I, I, I take it, Sam, as part of the compatibilism of Calvinism, that we do have a real longing of God for, for his people, even those that won't come to him. But there is an elective love that, that is distinguishing from that longing. Am I, am I going well with you guys? You guys are just, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think what you're talking about is this distinction in, in the, just as we said a moment ago, I said there, there are a couple of senses in which we use the word love. Mm-hmm. Well, there are also a couple of senses in which we use the word will. Mm-hmm. When we say, does God will something? And we've talked about this before, a distinction between God's secret, decretive or decretive will as over against his revealed or moral will. And what we see in Scripture most often is God's revealed or moral will, what God wants to happen. And it is legitimate. It is sincere. God says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's a legitimate passion in the heart of God. Same in the expression of Jesus over Jerusalem that you read at the end of Matthew 23. There is also the secret or sovereign will of God such that we, I believe that he has ordained that his revealed and moral will be resisted. Mm-hmm. If I can go back to the illustration we used last week, God's revealed or moral will is that people do not murder innocent, righteous human beings. Jesus was innocent and righteous. It was against the will of God for Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Roman leaders to crucify him. But it was also according to the will of God that they do so. His sovereign predestining will was that they crucify him. His moral revealed will was that they not. Now, again, people say, you guys are nuts. You're, you're, you're speaking in, in contradictory double terms. Speak. It's double speak. No, it's biblical speak. It is, that mm. is the way the word of God portrays to us the nature of God's willing. It's the same thing, for example, in Matthew 11 where Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and you revealed them to babes. Yea, it was well-pleasing in your sight. He said, nobody knows the Son except the Father. Nobody knows the Father except the Son and he to whomsoever the Son chooses to reveal him. That's a pretty clear affirmation of the sovereign will of God in terms of salvation. And then in the same breath, Jesus says at the end of Matthew 11, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So here is the universal indiscriminate appeal of Jesus set against the backdrop of the sovereign secret will of God. Uh, It's difficult for us to understand how those things can be compatible, but the Bible says they are. 
we're not saying the Bible's unreasonable. We're saying we're not saying it's irrational. We're saying it's transrational. Sometimes it exceeds the capacity of our minds to fully reconcile. But we believe that it does. I believe the things that appear now to be incompatible are perfectly harmonious, and we'll see that in eternity future. We can't right now. We just simply have to yield to it in faith. And I, th- I think sometimes what happens, too, when people are really struggling with this idea of a loving God is I think that they're forgetting the depth of sin of humanity. So, uh, you know, I would almost suggest let's take our view off of God for a little bit and let's look at each other. And and maybe if we see the depth of sin in he- the human race, we will see the offense against a loving God and recognize where he's coming from in many ways. And I love the illustration of, you know, Michael, if you and I sin against each other, uh, the, or let's say you lie to me, which occurs frequently, you lie to me, you know, at the most, I'm just going to say, Michael, you know what, you're a liar, and but, you know, I, I really don't have anything really against you, there really isn't anything I can do, but let's say I lie to, to a boss, well, my boss might fire me, you know, and, and I'll be fired, but like that's the extent of it, basically, but then let's say I lie to a federal judge, now what's going to happen? I'm probably going to get thrown in prison for lying to a federal judge. Let's take that same lie, and now I lie to my country. So someone who just lies to their country, you can be convicted of treason for for saying, oh, no, you know that's not going to happen, and then it does happen, and you knew otherwise. So you blatantly lied against your country. You can be killed for that. So you can actually be killed for one lie in our judicial system that we would call justice. And what we are saying, though, is one lie against a country is nothing compared to the sin against your creator that a human race has. You know, and so I think if we just think about that a little bit, that's just one lie against a creator, then I think we'll see the depth of his love in even interacting with humankind, let alone providing a savior, let alone providing millions of people to share with humanity about that savior. And I think we start seeing the love of God when we come to realization of the sinfulness of humankind. Yeah, Mike, it was R.C. Sproul who said that all mankind have committed cosmic treason. Yeah. Just to take off on your illustration. Hmm. Uh, Folks, you know, we're not presenting to you what we believe to be the most understandable or, or explainable of all the options that that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to take the biblical text take the completion of the biblical text. We call this systematic theology. And we're trying to look at the scripture as a whole and all of Revelation and put it together the best we can. And folks, sometimes there's going to be these tensions, not contradictions, but tensions. And if you can't learn to live with tensions with regards to your theology, you might as well go do theology somewhere else. Don't use the Bible as your textbook. Use something else because the Bible is going to present us with quite a bit of tension. God is going to present us with quite a bit of tension. And I love what you said, Sam, one of you said that what we're talking about is transrational. It transcends that which we can understand. And what do we expect? God is transcendent. Mm -hmm. God transcends us. And if we if we are able to understand it all perfectly, that's just a sign to me, at least to some degree, that it's man-made. 
I, I like that God leaves these tensions in. Yes, could he not have revealed this part to us so that we wouldn't be confused? Sure. You know, he could have left mm. it out of the scripture. There's a lot of things that, that God hasn't told us, a lot more things that would confuse us more. And he could explain things as well. But I think he leaves these types of things in here and says to us, in a sense, is, are you going to trust me? Do, do you think I know what I'm talking about? Are you going to redefine me? And I also think that one of the reasons why God doesn't, um, in, in the sense, cl- sense, clarify to the degree that we would perhaps hope that he would some of these really deeply mysterious issues is because he wants us to struggle. He wants us mm-hmm. to dig. He wants us to think and probe and, and uh, search out his ways. Um, you know, Romans 11 closes with that incredible statement about God's judgments being uh, beyond uh, searching out and his ways are inscrutable. But um, it is part of the joy and the challenge of the Christian life that we dig deeply into these matters. Um, if we had these simple and forthright answers to every question that resolved every mystery, we would pretty much be presumptuous and pompous and um, and, and would, in essence, lose the joy of searching the Word of God and talking through and praying about these matters. I I think I love the, the statement of John Piper. I'll probably butcher it, but I remember him said something to the effect that um, um, raking is easy, but you only get leaves. Digging is hard work, but you might find diamonds. Mm-hmm. And sometimes Christians want to settle for raking. They just want to scratch the surface of the Word of God and you'll you'll get something. You'll get leaves. But if you take the time and expend the effort to dig deeply, you find treasure. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to uncover the treasures that God has embedded in his word. And at, at many points we come, we, we discover the treasure. It's, it's stunning. Sometimes it's confusing. And we say, boy, it's a brilliant diamond I'm looking at, but I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. But that's part of, I think, the joy of the Christian life. And like you said, Michael, finally in the, in the final analysis where God says, are you going to trust me? Am I big enough and beautiful enough to you that you can leave it in my hands to reconcile and to make sense in eternity of what for you in time seems to be contradictory? Guys, we've got just a few minutes left, and I want to get through and finalize this invitation to Calvinism during this session. I know there's a lot more we could talk about, but a few things here I just want to ask, and and let's give just our best answer. This is people that have either written in or or objections that are common. Is Calvinism a belief that God is the author of evil, or does does Calvinism require God to, to begin evil because of the view of the sovereignty of God that he's in control? role of such things does that mean he was did, that he planned and brought about evil well what i would say i would point to the compatibilist aspect of calvinism here is what we are saying is that god is absolutely in control of everything nothing happens outside of his power outside of his awareness outside of who he is he's fully aware of everything yet he does not you know when something terrible happens uh let's say uh, you know just think of the worst thing you can think of on earth of a human being doing to somebody else i can't say oh look what god just did 
No, we're compatible. That person that did that will be forever responsible for that act. And what we would even say about evil is that if you, tracing back the beginning of evil, we wouldn't say, oh, look what God did in creating evil. We would say, no, look what Satan did, and he will forever. That is why there is a lake of fire, is to punish them. Now, was God not sovereign when that happened? No, he was fully sovereign, but did that happen? Yes, and those people... Those beings will all be punished for the evil that has been done against a holy God. Yeah, I would, again, uh, I, would, I would say two things. The Bible tells me two things. It tells me, Ephesians 1.11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. It tells me in Psalm 115, verse 3, that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. It tells me in Daniel 4 that his will cannot be resisted by mankind. That's what it tells me on the one hand. On the other hand, the Bible also tells me that God hates evil, that God hates sin. So how can it be that God works all things according to the counsel's will and he always does whatever he pleases at the same time that he hates wickedness and that he hates evil and that he does not, as you just said, Tim, he is not the the author of in the sense that he never commits any unrighteous act. Um, if you're wanting me to somehow reconcile that to, so you can sleep easily at night, I can't, but I believe it's true. And I know that my God is righteous. He does nothing wrong. And yet my God is sovereign and all things happen according to the counsel of his will. Well, no matter what side you're on, folks, no matter where you come down on this, the same problem exists. How did evil come into being, and why did God allow it? Because whether you're Arminian or Calvinist, you do believe that God has the power to stop evil. Now, these things... And, and by the way, we know that because he eventually will stop evil. Yeah, that's right. right. At the end of human history, God will terminate the existence of that. He will eradicate evil from the earth. So if God will do it, we know that he can do it, but we also know that he hasn't done it yet. So everybody has this problem. And the key thing with Calvinism is you cannot say, you cannot charge Calvinism as a belief that God instigated, brought about, was the genesis for sin and evil, and that he sinned. Yeah, and yeah. I think Paul speaks of this uh, in, in many places. Where, well, is, is Jesus now, is, is he the one that, that makes us sin, or is God now the author of these things? I mean, and you, he, he will always say, by no means, what are you talking about? This is crazy. No, God is not the author of evil. That's insane. You don't know God if that's what you're saying. But he's still saying, yet he is still fully uh, in control. And fully no, evil, no evil falls outside the sovereign purposes and will of God. And yet that is true without God himself having committed any evil. Because if, if you end up affirming that God is the author of evil, he just stopped being God. Hmm. He's now the devil. And, and, we, and, and we all have lost all hope. And, and it's not something, that's what I want to make clear to everybody. This is not something we say is just mysterious. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. No, he's, he's definitely not. <laughs> yeah, what we're saying definitely. No, you, you put that charge against him and you have created a situation where I think the greatest blasphemy has been created. That's right. That, that God is just, you know, he's doing all this. He's the evil one. Uh, there, there's a there's a hint of evil within him, and and we just got to live with that. That is not what we are saying in any sense. Um, listen, guys, we could go on and on. We're out of time. 
we've covered some of the big things. And I think a lot of the objections, as I look through the objections that I'm looking at, we covered during the sessions because, you know, we talked about is God's choices arbitrary? We talked during the sessions and said, no, that's not what we're saying. We're saying there is a reason why God does everything he does, but his election, whenever he elects us, is not based upon anything within us. Uncon- That's the denial, is that it's within us, a goodness within us. Unconditional election. Right. Unconditional upon us. Not flipping a coin, though. That is not what right. we're saying. Right. God has a purpose in every choice he makes, but it is not grounded in the goodness of the individuals whom he ultimately chooses. Mm. Um, we talked about another one that says, doesn't Calvinism ignore certain passages and reinterpret, uh, human responsibility? I think we've covered that last two sessions in compatibilism and saying, absolutely not. Calvinists can, and, and I've seen Calvinists do it. Uh, we're not trying to take everything and take it to a logical extreme, folks. We're trying to present what the Bible teaches and leave the tensions intact. Anytime you solve the tensions, normally you're going to go to a hyper-Calvinism of some sort or an Arminian towards an open theology of some sort. Or you're going to distort the text and twist it. Well, same thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, folks, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this series. I hope that this is just at least giving you a good presentation, and I hope a balanced presentation on what Calvinism is about. Again, we, we don't play around here. We're not uh, just teaching. We want you to come to Calvinism because we believe that not only does it speak the truths of Scripture in the most faithful way, but it stands before God. We stand before God and are able to see him in a different aspect of his glory that outside of what we have been talking about is completely or at least uh, uh, greatly denied and it's a it's a glorious thing to understand god in such a way all right folks uh we're not sure what we're going to be talking about next time but uh we'll we'll get you next time on theology unplugged you've been listening to theology unplugged visit our itunes page by searching theology unplugged at the itunes store all episodes are available as free downloads Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.